Experience is not the source of Christian knowledge. Experience is not the source of Christian knowledge, nor is experience the norm for Christian experience. If the Reformation has taught us anything, it has taught us this, sola scriptura. It's the Bible that is the source of knowledge and the source of our practice. But thanks to Pentecostalism today, there is a radical subjectivity, a radical subject, subjective spiritual experience that subjectively attributes their private interpretation, private devotion, private experiences with God, and a weird form of Christian asceticism to the work of the Holy Spirit. And as Luther said about the Anabaptists of his day, we can concur that they have swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. Now we do have otherworldly practices. We do. Like forgiving those who've sinned against us, forgiving the repentant who've sinned against us as if they've never sinned before and, and keeping no records of wrong turning the other cheek, loving our enemies in such a way that we care for them and we pray for them, giving our tithes and our good hard money to the church for Christian mission and for the ministry of the word and sacraments, giving beyond our time and energy in service to neighbor, even allowing our children, giving our children to the gospel who become witnesses in foreign and sometimes even difficult places where there are, where there are our persecutions and there is martyrdom. Yes, these are otherworldly practices, but these experiences, these experiences do not make the Christian, nor do they define the Christian. You see, the Holy Spirit working with and through the Word creates and defines our Christian life. Spiritual people are creatures of an understandable Word of God. Understandable word of God. That will make sense in a moment. Last week we heard about the assurance of glory. That is the hope of glory that gives us patience to wait out this to wait out this sad world. We have patience to wait out this sad world because we have the word of promise. God's word promises us glory. But sola scriptura, scripture alone promising this glory is not alone. For we have the word and the Holy Spirit. And that is what we find in our text, that we have not only the word of God that promises us eternal life, which we set our hope on and we can endure, but we also have the Holy Spirit. We have, we have, we have the presence of God. And so the Holy Spirit, like the word of God, gives us patience to wait out the fall for the glory of God. That's verse 26. Begins, likewise, likewise, that's an adverb. Likewise, it means in the, man, in the same manner as, in the same manner as verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, that's the promise of God's word, future glory, we wait for it with patience. Not only does the word give us patience, likewise the spirit, verse 26, likewise, same, same to the spirit, in the same way the Holy Spirit. 
The JSV reads, likewise, the Spirit too helps us gain assurance over our weakness. The JSV, that's the Jared Standard Version. That's the correct version if you're following along. You can just scratch out whatever version you have. But likewise, the Spirit too. No, I'm just kidding. The verb helps here, helps us. The verb helps means, it means to, it helps us gain a thing. Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us to gain something. It helps us to gain this hope, to gain this assurance, to gain assurance over weakness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us overcome the weakness of being creatures and the weakness of being fallen creatures. And we are gaining endurance by the Spirit in this sad age to wait out the fall for future glory. So this is the assurance of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the title of my sermon. If not, that is the title. I'm claiming that now. I'm naming it and I'm claiming it. This is the assurance of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he helps us because he is near. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We not only find in this text the presence of the Spirit helping us, but we also find the presence of sin, this weakness. This is why we need the Spirit, because of the weakness. We're weak. How weak? For we do not know how to pray as we ought. We don't know how to pray. What? Isn't Jesus taught us how to pray? <laughs> Supposed to pray in season. You know, ought here. We do not pray as we ought. Ought in the Bible. You'll find lots of oughts in the Bible. You ought to be like this. You ought to do this. It's the law, right? Ought everywhere. There's ought everywhere. It's full of ought. But ought does not imply can. That's Psalm 51. I'm evil born in sin. That's Romans 7. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. Ought does not imply can. It does imply must, but doesn't imply can. It's called sin. It's called total depravity. You ought to pray without ceasing. Show hands without ceasing. Who's praying right now? (laughs) Well, it's easy to pray during my sermon. (laughs) But better, I mean, easier. Who wakes up in the morning with prayer and closes the day with prayer? Show of hands. Well, actually, no. It's a time to be prideful. Right here. I got it. No. Morning and evening? What about when you're driving down the road and you see a wreck? Is your first inclination to gawk and slow down traffic and have me honking my horn at you? Or to pray? You see a brother or sister in sin. Is your first response to pry or to pray? Here's how foolish sin is. We will often as Christians even use prayer as a form of gossip. I've heard it, you know, I've probably done it. Well, we need to pray for someone. We need to pray for pastor. You know, I saw him the other day in the grocery store, and he had way too much wine to drink in the shopping cart. Not not that that could ever happen. Not that that has happened or could happen. I don't know if there's enough wine in the world that I can't drink. Well, no. But you see, we, we, we even use something good. That's the evil that is born. We're weak. We're weak at prayer. And we're weak at prayer, especially because prayer is spiritual. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts, 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Weakness. Our weakness here is lack of knowledge. We lack the knowledge of the will of God. You see, we know some things as creatures. We know some things about the Creator. That's natural revelation, natural law. We have a, a knowledge of how awesome God is. Creation shows us how glorious and awesome our God is. It also shows us how pathetic we are. <laughs> and how not so awesome we are. It's called conscience. And the law uses it and it convicts us day by day, moment by moment. shows us our weakness. And thus also the glory the majesty of God. We also have special revelation, general revelation. We have special revelation that shows us the will of God. Special revelation reveals that God the Father has sent the Son to die on the cross for our sins. And by faith in Him, we find righteousness, eternal life. And if we have that faith, we will also be a people who bring forth fruits of repentance. And we will obey Christ. We know things about God. But there is so much we don't know as creatures about the Creator. Theologians call this the secret will of God. We know the revealed will of God, and we search it out diligently. Search out diligently the revealed Word of God. Where is it revealed? The Word of God. Don't turn in, turn out. Now, the secret will of God we have no access to. We know salvation history and the glory of God. We know natural history and the glory of God. We know... Uh, salvific history and salvation, the glory of God and salvation, we know generally, we know biblically, but we do not ever know exactly God's thoughts, especially in every situation. We know what God wants revealed, and we do that. That's discipleship. It's a life of learning and applying a thoughtful word to our lives. We're all, we are to pray thoughtful, important prayers, and to search diligently what God would have us pray for. But here, we must realize, and we never should presume, that our petitions, our petitions are the will of God. Luther is good here. Luther says, I quote, It is not a bad, it is not a bad, but a very good sign if the opposite of what we pray for appears to happen. You pray for one thing, something else happens. He says, that's not a bad thing. Just as it's not a good sign if our prayers become the fulfillment of what we ask. You pray for what you get, you get it. That's not a good sign either. This is so because the counsel and will of God far out excels our counsel and will. If you pray, he says, Luther's basically saying, if you pray and it does not happen, it's not like you're outside of God's will or outside of God's love. It's rather, he didn't want you to have that thing. He had something better for you. The best illustration I can think of, you know, when I was a child, junior high, my junior high sweetheart. Lord, I want to marry my junior high sweetheart. I want to marry this girl. Give me this girl for marriage and I will live my life with her. I'm glad the Lord didn't answer that prayer because Liz was not my childhood sweetheart. I didn't meet my true sweetheart until I was in my 20s. Thankfully, the Lord didn't answer that prayer for my junior high. I don't even know where she's at. Lord bless her. Keep her wherever she's at. <laughs> but I'm glad the Lord withheld, right? The Lord withholds. And the same is true in adversity. If he withholds prosperity but gives adversity, the same is true. That's what we need. It's hard to 
It's hard to imagine in the midst of the adversity and the pain and the trouble, but that's exactly what God wanted for you. That is God's will for you. He is sovereign. And you can trust. And Paul will belabor that point in a moment in our text, not this moment, but next Sunday moment. That all things work together for good. And so there's confidence in this prayer. There's providence in God who knows, or the Spirit who knows the will of God, who prays exactly and earnestly, earnestly and exactly what we need. Always praying and always praying perfectly for us. That's how he helps us. You see, as creatures, we don't have the ability to know the Creator's thoughts. He's far above us. His ways are far out of reach. And as fallen creatures, this difficulty is compounded. And so if we're ever to find salvation in every part, justification, sanctification, glory, we need God. That's the point. We need God. We need the presence of God. We have Christ in heaven. But we can't be alone here on earth. We need the presence of God here on earth. He says, it's good that I go away so I can send the presence of the helper. And here is that presence. Here's part of his work. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Groanings too deep for words. Charismatics and Pentecostals tell us that this is their spontaneous, super emotional, ecstatic, non-linguistic speech. And actually, linguists have actually studied tongue speaking in charismatic Pentecostal churches, and they have confirmed this isn't speech. This is not a form of language. To which the charismatics say, yes, it's not of this earth. So apparently they speak gibberish in heaven. Excuse me, in heaven. I almost choked on my own words. I almost got caught up in the spirit. <laughs> but think about the importance of language and culture. Any culture, heavenly or, spirit, or, or, or earthly. Language is the, is the vehicle for thought. Language is the vehicle for emotion, response. Even volition. Language moves. Speech causes action. Guilty. Right? The judge. Guilty. What happens? You're guilty. Even if you're innocent. Even if you had a terrible lawyer. Once that gavel strikes, guilty. Boom. You are guilty. You go to prison. Words fill the heart. Words charge the mind. Language moves hands and feet. The word, in the beginning, the word, the logos, commands understanding. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Implies a language, understanding, truth. God said, let there be light. Understanding at creation. Understanding in revelation. There's nothing non-linguistic about the word. It communicates not only physical life, but spiritual life. We are a people of the word, so worship God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now the mind has fallen on hard times in our culture today. 
We are a post-rational culture, believe me. We're post-rational culture, and so today gibberish is okay in religion. Well, it's okay, yeah, you can have that gibberish. And that's what most, there's a lot of gibberish going on in the world. And that's just okay. Because we're post-rational. That's where that Pentecostalism and that charismania thrives on that post-rational. We need to recover the mind, the Christian mind, that needs to be renewed by the word. And to know that unknowable tongues is still just a noisy symbol of pride. We are not of this world. So we should rid ourselves of the subjective, performance-driven, emotional, consumeristic soundbite culture. We must subject our minds, will, and emotion to God's word, which must be known. You see, a word-centered religion. Ours is a word-centered religion. The word, a word-centered religion makes the mind the organ of the soul. The mind is the organ of the soul that lights our hearts with a renewing power of a knowable word. And so when we study biblical tongues, we see that it is, it is always something that, affect, that affects the mind. I know I'm going on somewhat of an excursion, but I think it's important in light of this text. Here, Bible's turning me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Drop down to verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear eat? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, all these countries, all these languages with all these various accents and tongues. They're hearing biblical, or they're hearing human language. Biblical tongues in the Bible had, has linguistic value. So much so that these Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Jews were speaking to Hellenized Jews in language from which they were Hellenized. That is, they were Greek Jew, they were Jews who were more Greek in culture. And they all had this Greek native language. And here are the disciples, Palestinian Jews, who probably could speak, obviously, Aramaic and probably a little, and Koine Greek. They knew some, they knew some Aramaic, and, they knew Aramaic and Koine Greek. Probably didn't even, maybe, maybe knew a little bit of Hebrew even, but not much Hebrew. But here they are speaking native, natively. When Indians from India, Indians from India learn English well. They learn English well. But they don't learn Texan. There's a difference. I'm Texan. That's, that's how my analogy goes. When I call them up, they're speaking English, but guess what? I, I can't hear it. <laughs> I don't understand. Could you say it again? Can you repeat? What? I know you're speaking English. But I can't understand. 
You see, when we as, as people groups learn other languages, we have a problem. There's a problem linguistics have found that we can't, it's hard to overcome. It's, it, it has to do with the way our mouths work, the way we use our teeth and our lips and our tongues when we speak. And so we don't have the value of certain language. When we learn the value of a language, we learn its grammar and we learn how to speak it, but we don't learn the accent. Our tongues get in the way, our teeth get in the way, how we speak in our culture, where we put how we speak with our lips or our tongues, the position of our tongues and our mouth. It's just something that's ingrained in us in our culture and how we are raised. And so when you go to another country, you learn the language, you don't really, you learn the language, but you don't speak it natively. But here's the point. Biblical tongues, they were speaking it natively. It would be like an India, Indian speaking Texan. Y'all boys, here's what y'all need to do. <laughs> believe, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know? But here they are. That's the point. It had linguistic value. And it was not only linguistically valuable, it was thoroughly religious. It communicated the glory of God publicly. They were gifted to preach the gospel. You see, the Holy Spirit helped them, helped them overcome a weakness, this cultural divide. The tongues in the Bible transcend personal and devotional use. One's emotions had nothing to do with tongues. It's all about salvation. Tongues are gospel. Tongues aren't law. Tongues are gospel. They're not law. Pentecostals and Charismatics flipped it. It's, hey, speak this way or you're not a Christian. Whereas in the Bible, it's, it's this. Let me speak this way in your native tongue so that you can hear and believe. Faith comes by hearing. It's a mind-based religion, a word-based religion, where the mind becomes the organ of the soul. And the word creates our Christian experiences. Look at Acts 10 now. Peter explains Pentecost 2.0. You see, there's two Pentecosts in the Bible. You've been told there's Pentecost, right? Chapter 2. There's actually Pentecost chapter 2.0, chapter 10. 10, 44-46. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. There it is. And the believers among... The circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. So you have the first Pentecost was the tongues poured out or the Holy Spirit poured out on the Jews in Jerusalem. Now tongues is being poured out on the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem. What's happening? This sign gift that the Lord has given these people, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit happened in Jerusalem and beyond. Why? Because the gospel was going out from Jerusalem and beyond. The gospel is proclaimed first to Jews, then to Gentiles. It's about the gospel. For they were hearing them speaking tongues and extolling God, and Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water? So on and so forth. Commanded them to be baptized, repent, believe, be baptized. This is the gospel going out beyond in Jerusalem and beyond. Knowable languages. It's a knowable religion. What about tongues of angels? The Pentecost, I can hear the charismatic. What about, oh, but there's tongues of angels. Well, first of all, okay, are you an angel? <laughs> no, you're not an angel. Second of all, 
There's no evidence of angels having special non-linguistic language. In fact, when you study scripture, every time there's an encounter with an angel, they speak a knowable tongue. It's as if they want to be understood. And second of all, when Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians? Chapter 13, yes. Tongues of angels. Yes, tongues of angels. 1 Corinthians 13. When he speaks there, he speaks not in fact. He doesn't factly say, hey, there's these angels and they have this unknown gibberish, ecstatic tongue that no one can understand. It has no linguistic value. He says, if angels, if angels ever, it's rhetoric. The Greeks love rhetoric. If they, he grants that if they had this tongue that you didn't understand, even then, it's still just noisy gibberish. It's a clanging symbol without love. Because love wants to be known. It wants to be heard. That's why he says prophecy is better. Because prophecy is a known language. And in the Greek, the Greek is nice because Greek gives us several moods. And one of the moods in Greek is the indicative mood, and that's the mood of fact. When a Greek speaker wants to tell you this is fact, when he's speaking in fact, he uses the indicative mood. This is fact. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. When he wants to speak in rhetoric, he uses the subjunctive mood. Even if I or angels come and preach to you another gospel... It's rhetoric. It's not as if he's going to preach to you another gospel in Galatians. And it's not that angels are actually going to appear and start preaching in pulpits another gospel. But he says, if they do, let's just, for, the, for, the, for rhetoric's sake, if they did, even then, they're anathemas. Don't believe them. It's rhetoric. He's not saying it's, hyper, it's hyperbole. It's exaggeration for an effect. And so Pentecostals will go to that. So you see here, these angels speak gibberish, so so should we. But it doesn't say that there at all. It's rhetoric. See, it's gross eisegesis to conclude that biblical tongues is a private prayer language. And there's no room in Romans 8. We've got to get back to Romans 8. There's no room in Romans 8. To include us here with the Holy Spirit. We are not groaning here with words, wordless words, with this non-linguistic language. Too deep for words. It's a phrase. Too deep for words. In the Greek, it's one word. And it's known as a hop. I'm giving you all this Greek stuff today. It's known in the Greek scholarly world as a hopox legomena, which means used one time. This word in the Greek, it's the only word... This word is used only one time in all the Bible. When you search the entire Old and New Testament, this word is a hopox legomena. It only appears one time. And what does that mean for Greek scholars? It means difficulty. What does this word mean? I don't know this word. Where did this word come from? I have no context for this word. Now I have to go study ancient Near Eastern culture to find out other places that this word was used. And then we have to try to translate this word. And when we do that, we find that the word means ineffable. It means we can't understand or hear it. And so then we translate it with a phrase, too deep for words. But here's what it means in context. It means that the Holy Spirit's prayer for us is beyond words. It's beyond our understanding. 
His prayer for us, his love for us, his care to be praying for us, and that perfect prayer is beyond understanding. It means his prayers are far above us. It means his prayer is too high for us. But high above is where it needs to go because that's where the Father hears. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, our practice, our practices as Christians, our practice does not sustain us. But God's practice does. Our experience does not create or sustain or bless us, but God's experiences, his practices for us. Our practice is weak. God's practice, God, the Holy Spirit's practice on our behalf is perfect. The Holy Spirit prays perfectly for us in accord with the Father's will. And so here's the truth of this text. The Christian, because of this prayer, can never so fall outside of God's will that he cannot be rescued. This perfect prayer of the Spirit means that there is no more condemnation. This perfect Spirit means that not only has Christ delivered us, not only has the cross delivered us from sin and death, but the Holy Spirit is now delivering us from sin and death, from this weakness that is ours. Not only has the Son secured God's love for us, and we can never be separated from his love. But now the same Holy Spirit is uniting us to that love, that eternal love that is filling our hearts and our minds to overcome the struggle and the lack of love that we have. And so the Spirit's presence in our life is leading us beyond us into the presence of the Father. You see, these are prayers of glory. These are prayers of glory, for that is their destination. And these two verses mean this. God is a whole Savior. We have one in heaven who now intercedes, as Hebrews says, for us. We have now one in heaven, Christ in heaven, interceding and defending us. But we have one on earth. Present in our hearts. Interceding us perfectly. That we might pass through this shadow of darkness and into the age of green pastures and still waters. God is a whole Savior who both spiritually and physically provides everything we need for body, soul, in life, and in death. It means that our confidence, our assurance is in a Trinitarian God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com. Dot com.